This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, an awful terrorist attack in Istanbul seemed to trigger less than the usual amount of Facebook sympathy. But Donald Trump still wants to torture everyone. Democratic congressional candidate Zephyr Teachout cruised to victory in the New York primary. Will the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee get her back in the general? We'll ask Zephyr Teachout herself. Congress took off on recess without doing anything significant on gun control. Have Democrats missed their window? And why doesn't anyone ever talk about the number one type of gun death? We'll ask Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. Finally, what's the deal with everyone loving Alexander Hamilton so much? Historian William Hoagland joins us to explain why Hamilton is so overrated. I'm Arthur Delaney with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Jessica Schulberg. Jason Lincolns is on vacation, and here's what happened first. Welcome, everybody. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm joined by my colleague, Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And Jessica Schulberg. Hey, guys. And we had a horrible thing happen this week, very deadly attack in Istanbul. What happened, Jessica? Uh, Well, we had an attack at the airport in Istanbul. There's three suspects coming from Russia, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. Uh, Nobody has claimed responsibility yet, which is unusual, but Turkish and American officials say that it resembles an ISIS attack because you had... uh, The three men were all armed with guns and then subsequently after shooting at people detonated themselves. Uh, Two people inside of the airport, one person in the parking lot who detonated himself as people within the airport were running outside. Uh, The current death count, I believe, is at 43 and well over 230 people wounded right now. So this is an attack uh, on the scale of of something like like Brussels or Paris. And the people are immediately talking about who did it, and it's all about ISIS. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Like, uh, you know, nobody's claimed responsibility, but there's a, a bit of an obsession over whether it's ISIS, and and it's just odd that it's such a strange, difficult thing to figure out. Right. I was actually surprised, well, by two things. One, that you didn't see ISIS immediately claim responsibility, uh, because we saw that even in the case of Orlando, where there's not a clear kind of command structure from ISIS to the Orlando shooter, just the fact that he was willing to lend some sort of allegiance to ISIS, they were happy to say, yes, yes, this is part of the caliphate. Look how strong we are. Um, And they're usually very quick to claim responsibility for attacks. So if it was uh, an ISIS-backed attacker, um, I'm not really sure why they haven't claimed responsibility. On a similar note, I'm surprised by how quickly the U.S. and Turkish officials have been willing to say it's ISIS. Uh, John Brennan said it very much looks like an ISIS attack. He's the Mm -hmm. head of the CIA. 
Uh, the Turkish prime minister also said it resembles an ISIS attack. And it definitely does look a lot like the attacks we've seen in Paris and Brussels, where you have two or three men coordinating in a highly populated area with lots of civilians, with a mixture of explosives and guns, kind of just firing indiscriminately at civilians. But so, is, it, is it unusual that the perps are from Russia and Kyrgyzstan, or is that not something people should be focused on? I, I don't find that super unusual. I mean, there has been sort of a, a extremist group of people in parts of Russia, and I think the whole thing we've seen over the past couple of years in Turkey and um, Syria is just people flooding from all over the world, really, um, this influx of foreign fighters. And for a long time, Turkey really wasn't doing enough to sort of secure its borders and prevent foreign fighters from coming in. Uh, I think the latest we have is an unnamed Turkish official told CNN that three these three individuals came into Turkey about a month ago uh, from the ISIS stronghold in Syria called Raqqa. Uh, that hasn't yet been confirmed, but it, it wouldn't be surprising if somebody who wasn't necessarily Syrian or Iraqi came in. And- so one of the things that fascinates me about um, this particular attack is that uh, you, you remember after Paris, like how the, the the entire United States, most of the of the you know what we call the Western world, just had this big outpouring of grief on social media, on cable news. It's not like people are ignoring this attack, but you haven't had the same level of of sympathy. And if, and if people aren't putting Turkish flags on their Facebook profile, right? right. Have it, put something on their Instagram. Yeah, and except if, for that. But if you've ever been to Istanbul, I mean. You you name one city in the world that yeah. is a better city than Istanbul. That is just one of the greatest places in the world. Thousands mm-hmm. of years of history from all sorts of different cultures. It's just a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, and what's been happening in that city over the past two years is really is just an absolutely un, unspeakable tragedy. This used to be, uh, you know, a, a totally safe, wonderful cosmopolitan uh, place in 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 Turkey, and, and now it's become the subject of a series of attacks. This is this mm-hmm. is not the first. Um, I guess I, I'm curious what you guys think about about that lack of empathy and then also what's going on in Turkish politics mm-hmm. um, that has made Istanbul a target. Um, it's, it's not like it, it just became uh, it's, not, it's not like the border with Syria just sort of opened up, you know, <laughs> you know last week or right, something. Right. Uh, well, several things on the issue of empathy. I, I, I do unfortunately think that, you know, you've been to Istanbul. You've seen how beautiful it is. And a lot of people have. It's a major international hub that a lot of airlines stop over through and. A lot of people have been there, uh, but I think it's still hard for most Western audiences to kind of relate on a personal level to Istanbul in the way that they would Paris or even Brussels, which isn't too exciting of a place to be. Um, it, it, it's just Western Europe, you <laughs> know, feels Brussels. feels more familiar, feels feels more similar to us. Um, but yeah, more I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's it's a huge hypocrisy. It's it's incredible. Um, on the issue of Turkey's borders, I mean. Uh, that's twofold. On the one hand, yes, being on the border of Syria is going to make you a target and is going to cause some spillover. You can't be neighboring as to a country that's engrossed in this horrible civil war, not um, reap some of the outfall. At the same time, Erdogan, uh, Turkey's leader, was very, very kind of playing a double game in the early years of the civil war because as the war in Syria heated up, uh, Syria's Kurdish people developed sort of an independent enclave in Syria, which sort of made Erdogan concerned that the Kurds would do something similar in Turkey. Uh, So for a while, he didn't do much to sort of stop the flow of foreign fighters in and out of Syria through Turkey's borders because he sort of viewed it as a a bulwark against the Kurds gaining autonomy. At the same time, you know, he would be happy to see Assad step down. So I think there was some reluctance in the beginning to secure the border in the way that we now realize he should have done. 
Um, in the past several months, he's definitely ramped up efforts to close off the border, um, allowed the U.S. to use an airbase to launch drone strikes and airstrikes. So it, it's, it's just a little bit. But for a long time, Erdogan was who is who is uh, you know sort of a, a right wing mm-hmm. candidate in, um, in in Turkish politics. You know, essentially, uh, Turkish politics are somewhat similar to American politics right. in that the cosmopolitan centers like Istanbul tend to be sort of more liberal, liberal. more uh, open minded uh, about social issues, things like that. And then in the, the countryside things are more uh, more conservative. Um, and Erdogan definitely uh, was elected with a more conservative countryside right. type type of vote. Um, but for a long time, he was sort of uh, engaged in a, a sort of tacit uh, alliance with ISIS in which in which he was more concerned about the threat of, of Kurdish nationalism and Kurdish separatism than uh, than he seemed to be about, about I'd, ISIS. I'd, I'd say an, an alliance with ISIS is overstating it. I think, uh, in my opinion, a fairer uh, description would be a tacit alliance with maybe some more of the extremist-minded opposition groups fighting Assad. And then, you know, there's some blurred lines between those groups in ISIS, especially when you get into Al Nusra, which is part of Al Qaeda, sure. there is a lot of bleeding between the groups. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think he was ever quite foolish enough to not recognize recognize the threat posed by ISIS. Um, and I think it didn't seem that, to be as much of a priority. To I think the Kurds, the Kurds right? were definitely more of a priority because I mean, the, the 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 fight against the Kurds is within his country. You know, that's his own civil war. That's his first priority. Uh, what's going on in Syria with ISIS? Ah, terrible. But you know. If they're fighting Assad, they're fighting the Kurds. You know, this isn't the end of the world. Jessica, what did you make of the political reaction here uh, with Hillary Clinton <laughs> and Donald Trump? Uh, quite quite predictable. I think Trump pat himself on the back uh, again, just like he did I'm after. I'm right again. Uh, just after Orlando, you know, we, we, this shows that I'm right. Terrorism's bad. We need to keep terrorists out of the country. Like, no Syrian refugees, even though Syrian refugees had nothing to do with this attack or Orlando. Uh, he recently pointed to this attack as evidence that we should do some more waterboarding. Again, it was unclear what the connection is there, but that's his response. Um, Hillary's Clinton, Hillary Clinton's response also pretty predictable. Just um, a, a broad statement that the U.S. can't afford to withdraw from the world and from this fight, which is clearly directed at Donald Trump's sort of isolationist attitude. But um, it would be interesting to see if she gets elected if we see a no-fly zone or kind of a ramping up of military engagement in Syria. All right, but so far it looks like this is not something that's exactly scrambling our politics at all. I think our politics... You mean our policy in Syria or... No, just just the, the political debate, the foreign policy I think each, here, it, here in Washington. It's allowed each side to sort of double down on what they've been saying. I think it's kind of interesting that Hillary Clinton is like the sane person to liberals and, and, and sort of the left in this conversation, um, even though she's she's clearly sending signals that she would be more hawkish in terms of military intervention than Donald Trump I mean, maybe I think, would be. I think liberals oh, are certainly. sort of left yeah. without a candidate right now. I mean, we either have someone who says... Well, you know, let's just bomb terrorists' families and waterboard the shit out of everyone. Or someone who says, yes, we should respect human rights, but we're probably also going to have to bomb them, but maybe in a more discriminate way than Donald Trump is talking about. Yes, drones. It's not even clear to me that Trump – I mean, it's like his economic policy. It's not clear that there's a policy there. Right, it's sort of whatever Um, he feels in the moment. Sometimes sometimes he sounds like he's an anti-war guy who doesn't want to do all these interventions. And other times he's like – We should bomb them very hard. Yes. Donald Trump in his supple mind. (laughs) All right, we're going to leave it there. We'll be right back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined by Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut, who last month spent all night talking on the Senate floor in favor of new gun control legislation. Senator, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Senator, after your talking filibuster, House Democrats staged a sit-in on the floor of the House, um, two huge spectacles, one after another, um, but in neither the, the Democrats in the House didn't get the vote they were asking for. Senate Democrats didn't uh, win a vote on uh, gun control legislation. Are you optimistic about gun control right now? Well, I'm not optimistic about gun control right now. We clearly don't have the votes in either the House or the Senate to pass meaningful anti-gun violence legislation. But I do think that you know when. You get five or ten years from now, uh, I think you're going to look back on the last few weeks as a watershed moment in the history of the anti-gun violence movement. I think this was the week in which Democrats um, became completely confident of their ability to use this issue uh, as a means to win votes amongst the swing electorate in elections. It was a week in which more Republicans than ever before crossed the NRA uh, and voted with us to support common sense gun violence measures. And it was a week or two weeks in which the American public really, you know, joined this effort in a meaningful way. I mean, I think we are just much more powerful as a political organization now than we have been before. So I, I think this is a week that will lead to victories down the road. But, you know, listen, the NRA spent decades building up the political power that's allowed them to, you know, effectively hold control of Congress. Uh, but we are four years into the modern anti-gun violence movement, and I think that uh, we are on our way to ultimately winning these votes. I mean, I don't know how you can't if you have 80 to 90 percent of the American public on your side. We'll get there. So, Senator Murphy, uh, your talking filibuster was spurred uh, in part by the, the mass shooting in Orlando, which, which were, you know, there was a terrorist sympathizer, and a lot of, of uh, what we talked about was the the threat of terrorists getting guns. Uh, but is is that really the problem? Because, you know, terrorism is a tiny fraction of gun violence. Well, there's a multitude of problems, right? And, and, and I think we always get caught in a trap or people want to catch us in a trap by saying, well, you're focusing on this issue, but it doesn't solve this other issue, right? So there, there are a lot of things we need to focus on. We need to acknowledge that Right now, groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS are 
um, calling upon their potential lone wolf attackers not to requisition control of airplanes, but to walk into gun shows and buy assault weapons. The assault weapon is the new weapon of choice for potential terrorists in this country, and so we should uh, uh, legislate to prevent uh, that trend line from continuing. But yes, that doesn't have a lot to do with the fact that 80 people die every day from guns because of our very loose and lax gun laws, whether it be on background checks or gun trafficking or permit to carry. So we also have to address that set of laws as well. Um, But, you know, we can't get caught in a trap in which we can only legislate based on the last shooting. We can't get caught in a trap in which we allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. Uh, Yes, in the wake of Orlando, we were talking about uh, the fact uh, that tougher laws with respect to people on the terrorist watch list can prevent mass shootings. But, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to trying to solve this problem. Senator Chris Murphy, most gun deaths are suicide. Is it not possible to talk about suicide in politics? Because you almost never hear about it. Well, I mean, I talk about it all the time in that I spend a lot of my time trying to promote uh, a major rewrite of our mental health laws. And I also talk about the statistics which tell you uh, that proximity to a firearm uh, is one of the um, most important uh, factors involved in suicide deaths. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that most people don't make up their minds to take their life until uh, very shortly before that moment. And when they have easy access to a firearm, uh, they often make good on that suicidal thought when they can't find a firearm readily. Uh, that moment often passes. So um, I certainly you know, talk about this, and I'm never shy to mention the fact that two-thirds of those 80 deaths a day are suicides. Not all of it is about access to guns. Some of it is our very broken mental health system. Um, but there's a reason why our level of suicide is epidemically worse than most other nations, and that's in part because of the easy access that people have to guns when those thoughts run through their head. Senator Chris Murphy, 33,000 people died from gun injuries in 2013, and two-thirds of those were suicide. I'm sure you're familiar. Um, but does that get left out? I mean, people just talk about gun violence and and uh, and take the big number that obscures the fact that you know most of this is actually suicide. Does it get left out just because people are afraid of being shot by someone else and there's no, you know, people don't think about the, the chance that uh, suicide will affect them? So I think that's, I think that I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the focus largely is on gun murders and mass shootings uh, because those are, um, you know, those are things that you can't control if someone has the ability to shoot you. Um, you might be more concerned about it than you might be about the intersection of guns and suicides because you would suspect you have more control over that. You know, as we know, um, you lose control over your mind pretty quickly uh, when you catapult into a deep depression or you have a psychotic break. And so, you know, it's probably a real false sense of security that people have that uh, they wouldn't be a victim of suicide because there are lots of people who committed suicide who a year or two years beforehand would have never thought of themselves as the kind of person who would get into that kind of state of mind. So, you know, it clearly is something we have to talk more about, but you are right that most people are talking about the mass shootings, about the uh, gun violence that happens in our cities because they think that that's much more of a threat to them than than, than being um, involved in a suicide. 
Now, so leaving mental health aside, even though, you know, I, I think in all instances of suicide, it's, it's a factor. If you talked about uh, limiting gun of, to talk about guns and suicide, you would have to talk about straight up limiting access to guns rather than what could be considered side issues like terrorism and assault rifles. Is that something that's like politically not feasible? Like, look, we've got to ha- just take people's guns away in some situations or make it harder to get all types of guns, including handguns. Well, we there is a Second Amendment right uh, under the Heller decision to private firearm ownership, and that is the law of the land, and none of the the policy measures that we're contemplating would change or reverse that. So you are not going to eliminate the um, the threat of suicide by taking guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there are lots of legal and illegal weapons um, that are in circulation today, and that sheer volume um, often makes uh, the... Um, the threat of suicide much uh, much more real. Uh, what about, uh, more broadly on just gun control in general, what about things like license requirements or, or gun insurance, uh, these sort of uh, meteor, I guess you could say, ideas for restricting firearm access? Well, in Connecticut, we passed uh, now two years ago uh, a permit-to-carry law that uh, requires people to get a permit from local law enforcement in order to carry a weapon, um, which, you know, allows local law enforcement to, you know, often go above and beyond the background check to these local law enforcement officials who, you know, have a much uh, sort of uh, greater beat on uh, the kind of people who should and shouldn't own weapons have been able to keep them out of the hands of uh, potential criminals in a way that has allowed Connecticut's gun violence rate to drop by 40% since we passed that law. So, you know, there are measures that you can pass relative to uh, to permitting that have already shown pretty significant results in places like my state. Okay, lastly, Senator Chris Murphy, what's happening next in the Senate? I know there was a uh, a sort of test vote on a compromise measure backed by Susan Collins. Um, Do you think Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to bring that up, or will you be doing something else in the near future? Well, we've already moved on from that bill, so the Majority Leader's already taken that bill that uh, the Collins Amendment was pending to off the floor. Um, I I think we are probably at a uh, stuck moment here in the Senate. We got more votes on the Collins Amendment than we ever have before for anti-gun violence measures. More Republicans broke with the NRA than ever before. That's good news. Uh, but we've got to take this issue to the electorate now. And a lot of my focus is going to be on between now and November building a political operation, a political machinery throughout the country that um, deselects members of Congress who voted against 90 percent of their constituents. We're going to eventually have to show that there are some political consequences to voting with the NRA and against the vast majority of the people you represent. And so I think this is a moment in which I'd love to get more votes in the Senate, but it probably is probably greater utility in focusing our efforts uh, on the fall right now. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Arthur. And we'll be right back.
And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined by, as usual, Arthur Delaney. And we have a very special guest today, a historian whose books include The Whiskey Rebellion, Declaration, and Founding Finance, William Hoagland. Bill, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So there has been um, a mania, a fever, a collective public enthusiasm uh, for the life of Alexander Hamilton over the past couple of years. Um, Mostly tied, I think, to the popularity of the the Hamilton musical. Um, but you have done quite a bit of work uh, on on Hamilton's legacy and career, um, and it doesn't really square with the public perception that seems to be out there right now. What um, what what do you think is are people are missing with the current sort of um, historical fervor? Well, yeah, it's funny because the, uh, the the musical, of course, is like it's, it's what everyone really is talking about right now. But it's kind of a, the icing on the cake kind of from where I'm sitting uh, in terms of the grand progress of the Hamilton industry, which is what I kind of think of it as, <laughs> Hamiltonians everywhere across the political spectrum, you know. Big Hamilton. Right. Yeah, everyone, I mean, so that the, uh, you know, the musical came along and just kind of like really blew it up. But it's funny because I've been writing about this for like almost, I mean, like 13 years maybe or something like that, 12 years that I've been sort of looking at this and, um, you know, the, the musical sort of sits on top of an entire apparatus that really, it, it's the big biography by Ron Chernow, and then um, uh, just the kind of adoration of how, the invocation, really, of Hamilton's name by people from, you know, Hank Paulson to Hillary Clinton to David Brooks, you know, I mean, it's just uh, been going on for quite some time, and now we have this uh, real craze that comes with this kind of stunning, you know, theatrical event. Um, now, you know, I guess what you asked is, like, what's everyone missing? I mean, um it just seems to me that it's, you know, invoking Hamilton from a finance point of view, it, uh, it's very interesting, but like what, what doesn't get discussed are the kinds of things that Hamilton did as in, in action to bring about uh, his plan of national finance, without which, you know, we probably wouldn't have really created a nation. You know, it's, it's cru- he is crucially important, of course, um, but some of that story is a lot darker than I think people who invoke his legacy really want to know. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to watch him uh, sort of be held up as a progressive icon. People like uh, you know Lin Manuel Miranda, who is the author of of the musical, the, the, the screenwriter, and everything, or stage writer. I'm not sure what the the word is there for for theater. Um, you know, he's he's this very uh, you know impassioned sort of liberal advocate for for instance debt relief to Puerto Rico. Um, and yet uh, Hamilton's you know, financial platform, if you go through, when I went through your book, The Whiskey Rebellion, uh, just didn't seem to really square with that sort of, um, that sort of, sort of uh, debtor-focused uh, rehabilitation kind of, uh, k- kind of policy. I mean, what, what should people know about Hamilton that doesn't seem to be uh, getting out there in the discourse right now? Well, yeah, I mean, the folk, I mean, first of all, it's not just in my book, The Whiskey Rebellion, although I did uh, kind of assertively bring these things out in that book. But of course, if it were just me who thought, you know, if I thought I was the only person who ever came up with this, I'd be, uh, I'd be more eccentric even than maybe I already am. So, you know, <laughs> there's a there's a whole body of scholarship that just hasn't really been put front and center that I have I had to rely on when writing The Whiskey Rebellion. I, I relied on a lot of primary sources and read Hamilton himself very closely. And I mean, just generally speaking, uh, no, you're just not going to get from Hamilton um, anything about debt relief. You're going to get from Hamilton 
um, the shoring up of uh, the creditor class, and he had very cogent reasons for that. It, it, that's the funny thing. It's like, it's it's like it's not like oh he was secretly you know maniacally sort of pretending to be a Democrat and uh, a Democratic person you know with a small d on the one hand, and then on the other hand he was secretly you know shoring up uh, concentrations of wealth. He believed for very cogent reasons that shoring up concentrations of wealth was the key to nationhood. And in a certain sense, I think you could say he's right. It just should give us maybe some, some raise some new questions about what we think nationhood is and, and what we think concentration of wealth does. But, um, you know, income equality or, you know, debt relief, these were the opposite of his, uh, his agendas. So then it becomes funny when people, on, especially on the left, uh, invoke his legacy. I think one reason they do, though, is that he was very much uh, an activist government guy. So mm-hmm. from a liberal point of view... Um, you can say, well, look, this is the basis of, you know, you could even say it's the basis of kind of a New Deal approach to using government power to to set and enforce uh, finance policy, monetary policy for certain social ends. Uh, tell us about the Newburgh crisis. This is, uh, we need to, we need to tell, give us the poop on Hamilton straight. Uh, yeah, so the Newburgh crisis, and it's, this is a funny thing, like people who are really into Hamilton right now, and yet you say the Newburgh crisis, and it's not going to figure really for them. Um, although, I mean, from my point of view, and I'm not totally alone in this, um, this is the series of events that formed him, uh, formed him as a public person and as an actor, an activist public person, without whom, you know, maybe nationhood would not have occurred. Um, in other words, it formed him in a place where I think his emotional life was most intensely lived. So it's funny that we don't know much about it, and I think one reason we don't know much about it is that it's not edifying in any way by most readers' standards, or even by the standards of the people who invoke him. Well, give give us some very basics. What happened? What and what did he do? This was this a, a coup? Uh, a coup? I'm ranting on about it without saying what it is, and no one knows what it is. This is a funny thing. This is a position I'm always in, so <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, it's. Uh, Basically, it was a, an attempt to threaten, during uh, 1782 and 1783, uh, with peace in the offing in the Revolutionary War, there was an element uh, within Congress and in the military, the, the revolutionary officer class, who decided it would be a wise idea to threaten the Continental Congress with a threat of military coup. Um, I'm, I'm emphasizing threaten because I don't think it, you, it's provable that Hamilton and his cohort uh, actually wanted to carry out a military coup and take over. Uh, the country that way, but they certainly did think they could get leverage for their finance plans by threatening that. And that, that's just not very democratic. Uh, no, it's totally anti-democratic. And, and uh, you know, Hamilton uh, and his crowd were not alone at that time in being anti and being undemocratic or anti-democratic, we should, we should note. Um, most of the founder and founding fathers, the famous founders, were extremely dubious about what they called democracy, and they wanted to keep power and political power in the hands of those with financial power. He wasn't alone in that, um, but this was an extreme, uh, an extreme effort in which um, the idea would be to bring the officer class into the credit, a public creditor class, give uh, officers uh, federal bonds, Congress's bonds, as a form of back pay, and thus add to the creditor, public creditor lobby, like the most powerful kind of lobby there is on Earth, an armed military force. Like, what if they just refused to lay down their arms? Um, that was that was the attempt, um, and uh, there's a name that comes up that again, if I start rattling on about him, people will say, "Who is this?" Funny because Hamilton's main mentor, his his most important mentor and person who really taught him a lot about 
finances, a guy named Robert Morris, who was really at the head of this uh, this crisis, this crisis, this founding era crisis in which we might have actually opened up the possibility of military coup. Um, this guy, Robert Morris, is not someone who comes up much in uh, the public understanding of Hamilton, and yet for Hamilton, if you really care about where Hamilton was coming from, Robert Morris is um, a critically important character. He was the financier of the revolution, and it was partly, largely his idea to try to pull off this threat, at least, of military coup in 1782 and 1783. Hamilton comes onto the public stage, so the fact that we don't know that about him takes something away from his very development. So William Hoagland, uh, Robert Morris, and Alexander Hamilton, uh, as the Revolutionary War was winding down, threatened a coup, and and the aim of this was to establish an authoritarian government that made rich people richer. Yes. Now, should I qualify that statement? Should I just say yes, or should I... (laughs) Yes is fine. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, there there is this idea in your book, right? Correct. That is correct. That is correct. Well, that's Maybe bad. A little bluntly put, but uh, there you go. We well, need bluntness around Hamilton because there is, hasn't been enough. And that's another argument of yours that you need some bluntness here. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, you've got to, you make these statements, people go, well, there's no balance to that statement. And like, well, no, there's no balance to the other statements that leave these things out. So is, my, is some of my effort, um, you know, a little bit. Uh, corrective and therefore, you know, louder and more and more blunt and more simplistic uh, than it needs to be. Uh, no, it's not because all of the things I'm saying are imp- critically important elements of Hamiltonian finance and of Hamilton's own life as he lived it as a public figure. And so, it's just as distortive to leave them out. But somehow, when you bring these things up and really bring them to life and show Hamilton in action. Yeah, it's just very easy for people to go. Well, that's just overstated. That's well, kind well, of zen-like, right? Well, and, and when you when you talk about things like the creditor class and the officer class, I mean, these are creditors are the people who have the money that they are lending to other people, so they are rich to begin with. Officers are are distinguished from rank and file soldiers by virtue of being officers. Um, you're talking about an alliance between between the wealthiest people in society uh, against the people who do not have access to, uh, to, to that money. Um, and that's, that's the type of system that, that Hamilton was trying to go for. And I think, I think you do a really good job illustrating that in, in your book, which everybody should read. It's, it's called The Whiskey Rebellion by William Hoagland. And uh, uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll be right back. And we're back. We are joined. I'm Zach Carter here with Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we are joined by a frequent guest of the show, Zephyr Teachout, who has some news. Zephyr, anything interesting happened to you this week? Oh, yes. I uh, I just won the uh, Democratic primary. Oh. I ran for Congress in New York's 19th district, and we had a huge win. It was really, really exciting. Well, we have a winner on our show. We're the opposite of candidate confessional. <laughs> no losers allowed. And, and, you know, if you're not, if you're, one of the things that was really exciting to us was we, the turnout, voter turnout is low. It's always low. It's way too low. I wish it was a lot higher. But it was significantly higher than it was uh, four years ago. And also it was significantly higher than the Republican turnout on the Republican side. So it's exciting to see that we have a more energized um, 
uh, base. Now, you you defeated uh, your 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 uh, closest opponent was a uh, Ivy League educated uh, gay organic farmer. Sounds like sort of uh, a a cartoon character from Democratic Hippie Land. Do you feel guilty about just beating the tar out of this gay hippie farmer? You know, I actually, I want to say I had a great, um, I have a lot of respect for Will. Yeah, so I, so Will, I think he spent about $400,000, um, and he ran a very serious campaign. It was a campaign about issues, and we, I'm completely committed to the small-D democracy, lots of events, so we had not just three debates, but uh, dozens of forums. We, I think we appeared together 15 or 16 times where people got to ask us questions, and I have to give Will a lot of credit because it never became negative. It really, and, and a lot of the time it wasn't even a sort of he said, she said, this and that disagreement. It's just a different emphasis, it's a different uh, approach towards how to get things done. And I, overall, um, I, I thought it was really good for people to get a chance to come out and ask questions about, you know, how do we do something about climate change? How do we do something about um, money and politics? We did have a difference of opinion. He does not support public, publicly financed elections. Uh, uh, Zephyr Teachout, tell us about how you will now be pivoting from the Democratic primary to the general election against Republican John Faso. The, I'm running on the exact same thing I've been running on all, the last five months and also that I ran on in 2014 um, in the gubernatorial race. It's We have a, a real serious problem of corruption. A lot of it is legal, even more legal after the Supreme Court opinion the other day. Um, and gridlocked. It's it's not functioning. We got to get make Congress work again. We got to change some of these basic systems. And I'm talking about clean water and protecting our water. I'm talking about stopping TPP and renegotiating NAFTA. Um, talking about education policy. I think that sometimes people sort of think of these as Republican or Democratic issues. But I gotta say, clean water is not a partisan issue, or it certainly shouldn't be. So there's there's no pivot. I'm I'm I am who I am. Now, you are generally uh, affiliated with uh, the progressive wing of the party. I believe in our our, uh, our piece on your victory, we've referred to you as a progressive icon. Um, people associate you with Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Bernie Sanders helped raise money for your campaign. Um, in in a district that is uh, was previously uh, you know held by uh, a Republican, um, how how do you tailor a progressive message um, to to that sort of community? Again, I, just to be clear, I, I, there, there's not a lot of tailoring going on. The issues are, are pretty much the same. And the Republican who's stepping down is a guy named Chris Gibson, um, who, you know, obviously we disagree on some basic stuff, but I will say I have a lot of respect for him and have a good relationship with um, uh, So uh, what I hear from everybody is they want Congress to work, function, actually function. You know, we can't mm, good be luck. talking about who's, who's, <laughs> who's two inches to the left or two inches to the right on this or that issue if people aren't even talking to each other. Um, and, the, the, you know, I hear people just saying, I've got to get this moving again. So one of the reasons that I, we have a lot of excitement, and I, I heard from some of my Republican independent friends saying, I'm sorry I couldn't vote for you in this Democratic primary, is um, uh, people believe I'm going to go try to shake things up, and I'm not going to be afraid, and I'm going to try to actually get at the basic machinery problem, which is uh, Congress has some structural problems, mostly the way it's funded, uh, mostly the way campaigns are funded. Um, but but 
because of that structural problem, Congress has fundamentally turned into a closed, a closed room where people help each other out and aren't serving their constituents. Oh, Zephyr Teachout, a, a, a lot of people have said, uh, you know, Donald Trump being on the top of the Republican ticket will be very helpful to Democrats down ballot. Um, but it, it sounds like you're going to are you going to talk about Donald Trump in your campaign or will you stick to these progressive priorities? What I what I hear about is that people aren't uh, are really looking for a representative who, uh, you know, come from the Democratic Party. That's I'm, I'm proud of that. But who is going to come with an independent approach? And uh, the fact that I ran against Andrew Cuomo a couple of years ago, that uh, sort of a showing that I'm willing to be independent seems really important, not just to Democrats, but to Republicans and independents, um, because they're kind of sick of the way people usually talk about politics, and they're not necessarily that happy about uh, what's happening uh, nationally. Well, what's going on with you and, uh, and and the Democratic Party itself? Because you've had a you know, runaway polling lead in this race. Uh, you, you, I believe, raised more money in the first quarter of this year than any other candidate in New York from either party, um, mostly from small donors. Um, that's, that's the sort of thing that you expect uh, the official Democratic Party apparatus to get very excited about. And yet the DCCC, their recruitment arm for the House, um, did, did not endorse you. Um, what, what's going on there? You know, I, I have been so focused on a few different things. One is just being everywhere in the district, talking to everyone. Um, and we put about 18,000 miles on my car. Um, so <laughs> it's, been through, it's been through two oil changes since <laughs> the campaign. And, um, but this is this is an expensive district. I mean, you're, you're probably going to need some help from the party at some point on, on fundraising. Do you expect that to materialize? I, I would I would appreciate it, and I also feel like it's been important for me to start with my own um, grassroots base. So we have over forty thousand donors. In fact, today is our last filing deadline, uh, the last day of the filing deadline. Um, and my real dream is to build such a massive low dollar fundraising base. Um, my real dream is to have public financing elections. But in this world that we're in, <laughs> to build such a massive low-dollar fundraising base that I can be truly free at all times to be listening and representative, representative and working towards, you know, the real problems that are that are facing people, not um, spending time raising money or even sort of thinking about relationships in money terms. I don't think that's the way that uh, people want us to be thinking about relationships. All right. Well, Zephyr Teachout, thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations on your primary victory. Thank you. It, it sure feels good to uh, to win a primary. I'll bet it does. It's uh, you know second time's the charm, I guess, right? Yes. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me on. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this week we were joined by Senator Chris Murphy, Democratic congressional candidate Zephyr Teachout, historian William Hoagland, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, 
send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.